We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Arsene Wenger loses his cock, but with an impending deal for Alexis on the horizon, we'll find out if he still has his balls. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. Francis Coughlin is gone. Um, it is it is a new era at Arsenal. We will discuss that and uh, the nil-nil draw at Chelsea, for better and worse, uh, with Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter at Paz, my fans. Hey, Paz. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. Um, so, yeah, the cock is gone. Uh, long live the cock. And I think this is going to be a little bit tricky because I didn't like him. I didn't like the way he played. I didn't like seeing him play for us. I didn't like his his crazy style. I don't know. It was just all around not something that I warmed to. Having said that, Tim, he, he has developed uh, a cult following at the club. Some people think of him as a clown. Some people adore him, and they adore him for his his application. Right, I think mm. at a time when players are very easily criticized for not caring about the badge, not caring about the club, not trying, not working hard for the team, he seemed to exemplify someone who, with potentially limited technical skill, was always giving his all. Now, I have my mm. own take on this, which I will uh, be not shy about providing. But before I do, how do you feel about Coughlin's time, his sort of second act at the club, really, the, the time when he was recalled yeah. from loan till now, and the fact that we've sold him? Yeah, it's it's quite interesting, isn't it? No, not so much Cockerland's Co- career is quite interesting to this point because it's taken a very unusual tra- trajectory. Um, but also, I think you've hinted at it there. Um, 
He's one. I think one of the many players actually Arsenal have got and had over the last few years who really divides opinion. And I'm starting to think that basically everybody divides opinion at this point because, I mean, somehow Alexis Sanchez is dividing opinion. Um, so I'm not. I'm not really quite sure how it works anymore. Maybe we we just all love arguing with each other. But this. But with Coquelin, um the kind of the two camps that that it inspires. Um, you know, I, I think this just proves the old adage that the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, he wasn't amazing or the saviour. He formed a pretty decent working partnership with Santi Cazorla. I happen to think that was 80% because of Santi Cazorla, but maybe I'm doing Coquelin a, a disservice there. You know, he was he was a decent squad player um, who, who fulfilled a purpose. I think Arsene Wenger liked him because he largely did what he was told. Although I started to think in the last few months that, you know, when when he first broke back into the team, Wenger said something about, you know, players um, appreciating their skill set. And he said, you know, Coquelin, he kind of lost his way because he started to think he was something he wasn't. But now he knows to play to his strengths. And actually, I think he's started to come away from that again. Um, well, ironically, of- you've got the Arsenal Twitter account tweeting videos of him doing stepovers in the FA Cup you know, as part of his farewell, which may be fitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and it was, um, you know, I, I appreciate he was asked to take like a slightly more advanced role. And I, I think that's all fine. But yeah, kind of on the ball, I think it snuck back into his game where he started to try to do things he perhaps wasn't really capable of. Um, but, but ultimately, with Francis Coquelin, you have to say, uh, perhaps somewhat harshly, the big outlier in his Arsenal career is that four or five month period where he played pretty well with a peak Santi Cazorla. Um, and that that's the outlier in his career so far. And, you know, I, I was relatively happy to keep him as a squad player, but Wenger intimated that he wanted to go somewhere and play, to which absolutely fair play to him. And Valencia is a really decent club to go to. You know, it's not, it's not exactly a massive drop. For him, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly, I'm fair, I'm okay about it. I didn't desperately want him to go, particularly with the role he's got at the moment. I think we'd moved past the point where you know he'd like, you know, Wenger's got a touch of the Giroud's or had a touch of the Giroud's with him, where he felt like he had to play him, and I think we went past that point. Um, but ultimately, I, I'm not sure he really fits with any of our midfielders anymore, and, and his purpose is anything other than you know a cup player or someone who comes on in the last 10 minutes had, had expired, really. So I think it makes sense for a lot of people. And I'm, I'm really pleased to see Wenger's comments about Maitland-Niles, basically saying Maitland-Niles is going to be his replacement. I'm more than happy with that um, because Maitland-Niles at this stage has a higher ceiling, I think. So let's see what he can do. You, you hit on something that's so important for me, which is ceiling. And I think Coughlin is endemic of sort of the problem at the squad, which is plenty of players who offer a limited amount who could Mm. be replaced by players who may fail but whose Mm. ceiling is higher and so maybe him moving on makes way for the Willicks of the world and the Maitland Niles of the world to have more chances in midfield where they may not as consistently perform as Coughlin which is certainly problematic I acknowledge but at their best we believe they have more to offer and I think it had become troubling the way we were using Coughlin to come on late in games because I think we had been inviting pressure on ourselves by doing that. And I look forward to maybe a slightly different approach to finishing out games where we have a lead anyway, where the players we yeah. bring on have give us a little bit more control. Um, you know, I do think 
that to Coughlin, in Coughlin's defense, look, first of all, I think that period you mentioned, Tim, and you're right, the outlier period was the period where he was very good for us. Um, that was not the, the main part of his career. But I also think we remember that with rose-tinted glasses. He came in at a time when we were a leaky ship, and he helped plug that hole. I don't think we played great football down the stretch. I think his partnership with Santi Cazorla made us functional and defensively more solid. And that was important, and I won't take that away from him. But I think ultimately the football we were playing during that period was very pedestrian. Um, Paul, where I think it started to really go south for him, though, was this shift to pushing him more uh, into more advanced positions and using him as a sword more than a shield. Using his and he is an elite tackler. I think the statistics show that. Although I don't think he is particularly strong, uh, as we saw that there's unfortunately that really now famous gift moment, uh, gift moment of uh, of Hazard just shaking him free, running up the pitch. Um, well, it was a gift for you anyway. It, it was a gift <laughs> for people who who hold my opinion. But uh, yeah, no, I mean. He started to be used more as a sword in terms of a pressing agent and less of a shield in front of the back four. And that I'm not sure that he ever kind of got the balance right there. And that when he missed on the tackle or when he sometimes his instincts let him down in terms of when to step up, that space that was left him behind was very vulnerable. Do you feel that that tactical shift to pushing him up more and using him as more of a pressing agent maybe limited his ability to be effective? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh He's never suited to being the deepest player. And as a a DM, I kind of saw him as having a couple of superpowers. I mean, he was absolutely extraordinary at certain things in his heyday. Um, You know, in a way, the two things that did him in, you mentioned one of them losing Santi. The other was losing losing Squawker website with the comparison charts where, you know, he'd mince everybody. I mean, just an absolute In the tackle beast. stats? Yeah. <laughs> well, almost anything defensively. I mean, Interceptions, he was just, he, duels. Yeah. And, and in his heyday, I mean, he was, he, you know, he was bombing around doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, I assume most of it did something good for us. But he needed Santi beside him, and Santi could play a little deeper, hold onto the ball, play us out of pressure. And the two of them just worked out a way of getting things done. Um, but, yeah, without that... You know, what's the rationale for him being the deepest player? Uh, It only works for part of the game. So uh, it was also a time in which we began to use pressing upfield in a way that we hadn't done before. And he was actually pretty handy at it as a a one or two man press. Um, And it was one of those, you know, uh, where we diverge is, I don't think his bad was that bad. I think it was pretty good. Where we agree is it wasn't good enough for Arsenal going forward. And, um, you know, uh, what, you, what, I'm, what I'm pleased about with this and maybe one or two of the other things we're about to do is clearing the decks and creating some cap space to get the kind of players in place that we really want. Or moving Maitland-Niles, who I've had a long hankering to see partner with the various CMs in midfield. So... You know, ultimately, he wasn't good enough. Yeah. Uh, he was he was great at certain parts of the game, but it's clear what we have is way too many central midfielders who have a strength but a sizable weakness, and they're not really that complementary or interchangeable. It was interesting. He said that Santi had recommended Valencia to him. So I can see a kind of a plot forming here. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meet you at Valencia. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, Santi might be meeting him in the stands at Valencia. I don't. I don't know how I feel about his playing yeah. career. But I mean, look, he he's gone. He will not be forgotten easily. I I think. Look, and I am guilty of this too. I think what has happened in the modern Twitter Vine era of football is that it is hard for players to win back fans once they've had a few comedy moments on the pitch because those comedy mm. moments on the pitch just live forever on the internet. They become memes. They become gifs. gifts. They become vines. Um, so, you know, there's him doing that wild jump through the air to try to block the shot. There's the um, his injury where he looks like he got shot by a sniper. There's the red card against Spurs. Um, you know, there's the there's fact he's never scored. bouncing off Hazard's arse. There's bouncing off Hazard's arse. There's, there's never scoring a goal. I mean, but some of these, some of these vineable moments have turned him, have lampooned him a bit and turned him into a point of comedy. And while I don't think that's in the manager's mind and I don't think that's a real footballing thing, it is definitely a thing in terms of how fans interact with the game and the players and their team today. Um, I think ultimately I just don't see Francis Cochran being a starting player for a team that wins a title or challenges for a title. And I don't know that you should be filling out your squad with players like him. He, he was never useful enough to me to be a squad player. And I think the manager just couldn't resist using him, even in instances where he didn't really fit. And by the way, I think that's sort of a, a Giroudian kind of thing. I, you know, I do want to read a tweet, and I, I sort of hate to give this oxygen in a way, but I, I think it sort of summarizes the problem with the debate we have around players in this club. Someone decided to pop up and tweet me, you are fucked up for the hand you had in helping promote the unfair way Cochran was treated. Was very poor on your part towards someone who fought for the club the way Francis Cochran did. Limited, yes, but deserving of having his service at the club becoming a joke, not by a long shot. Now, some of that is fair. I mean, maybe it was harsh on him to, to turn him into a joke. Having said that, I'm a joking kind of guy. I'm a sarcastic kind of guy. It is my Twitter account, and I am certainly uh, within my right to use it how I see fit. But this notion that somehow I or anyone is promoting the treatment of a fan, that in your own personal social media or your own expression of your ideas about a player, you are somehow contributing to an agenda or contributing to a movement uh, is just silly. And I think, look, you can love Francis Cochran and be sad to see him go. You can think he was a comical fuck-up of a footballer who never belonged at Arsenal. Those are opinions you can hold and express and share. And in reality, they bear absolutely no impact or effect on, on the club, in my opinion, anyway. I mean, Emmanuel Abue is another player who I think falls into this category. At his low moments, he was comedy. At his best moments... He was actually a really, really good right back for us for a period of time, um, and that has been forgotten. But like, I don't think people making fun of him on the internet had much impact on that. Anyway, so no. you, you know, Francis Cochran will go with, I, I think, a lot of people appreciating the effort he put in. But I also think this is the weird thing about modern football is that we attribute qualities to players that we can't prove exist. Can you prove that Francis Cochran loved Arsenal more than Alexis Sanchez loves Arsenal? I mean, you could say, well, yes, I can prove it, and here's how. You can't prove it. You can't prove that Francis Cochran is trying harder than Alexis Sanchez is trying. But Alexis Sanchez is manifestly one of the best players in world football, and Francis Cochran is not. And, like, I get it. You're going to have these pet players you fall in love with. That's the joy of football. We're always going to have that underdog player at our club who we kind of love, who we kind of, you know, get attached to. And I, I would never say you're not allowed to do that. But, I mean, Tim, just as a final thought, is it maybe a little bit silly the way sometimes we – 
put our arm around limited players and fall in love with them and at the same time have this double standard for our exceptionally talented players where we expect them to have these qualities that we imbue on on the lesser players yeah yeah i think so and i i think you know, you point. Uh, I mean, this is one of the many things that confuses me about the Sanchez thing. Well, I say the many things. One of the things that confuses me about the Sanchez thing is when people say, "Oh, he's checked out," and I think like, he he's still running. Like whether whether he, like, what, what he's feeling or whatever, I've got no idea. I'm not sure I care that much, but he's still demonstratively like running around like a lunatic, like he always does. And I don't think he's capable of doing anything else, which is why I was okay with the idea of keeping him this season. Yeah, that, that does happen. It's probably natural in a way because it, it's the same way that basically there is no good way for a player to leave your club unless it's the club that makes the call that they don't want That's them such anymore. A good Those That's are, such a good point. Yeah. Those are the players that go with our best wishes, the ones we don't want anymore. Um, the like ones Kieran, that, Kieran Gibbs, great example, right? Yeah. Like everybody yeah, loves exactly. Kieran Gibbs, despite the fact that he was kind of just soaking up a really nice wage at the club for a while. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, it, it's weird because uh, I quite often, particularly at the moment, seeing like Ozil and Alexis described as contract rebels. And I was thinking, is, is seeing out your contract, does that technically make you a contract rebel? It's a, But it, sh- it shows you like um, the weird kind of backwards world that football exists in where someone running down their contracts is seen as very divisive and and understandably like I, i'm not saying i don't understand the reasons for that i do but you know it's it's football's kind of a weird world like that and it's kind of a world where quality really really wins out but we really we still really prize the perception of effort um over quality as well and again that's that's quite understandable um yeah. to a degree but but yeah, I, I think you're right. I think I think basically, yeah. I mean, I, I'd stick to my original point there that basically, when when the club decides that a player is expendable, those are the ones that that get everyone all dewy eyed. And I've seen loads of people tweet stuff like, "Oh, I really wanted him to go, but now I'm actually quite <laughs> I'm quite sad that he's going." And uh, yeah, and I, I think it kind of comes comes from that place a little bit. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit of guilt in there as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think it just like it helps us to feel good about ourselves, maybe rather than the guy that that runs down his contract and is going to go to a better club. Or you know, like I, I think, for example, with Chamberlain, at least for a while, that there, there seemed to be a real obsession on on Twitter with his every Liverpool performance, and I, I didn't really get it because I just thought, you know, I thought you all wanted him to go. <laughs> Um, and I, I thought the time was right for him to go, so I, I'm not really interested in how he's doing at Liverpool, really. I don't wish well, him ill. And that's an example of us but... doing a decent job selling. He was going into the final year of his yeah. contract. He had never really hit the high notes consistently. He had an injury history. We didn't and seem we to know paid. how to use him, and we got paid. <laughs> yeah, That's so, how football works, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's just there's, there's a very narrow uh, kind of corridor to walk down if you're a player to go with um, with the supporters' best wishes, and it's usually being... Um, willing but not entirely able. Yeah, and look, this is all rewriting history now, but let's remember, Francis Coughlin wound up back at Arsenal basically because the manager had done such a poor job building the midfield that he allowed a crisis to develop that was so nightmarish that this guy had to be recalled when he had basically one and a half feet out of the club. The manager seemed Mm. to have no use for him and threw him in as, you know, like a last gasp hope at shoring up the deeper part of our midfield and our defense. 
and managed. And he did to, great. And he did. And he met. No, of course, Paul. He and he, he, he eat something he, out of it. He's, but he's probably along with Santi the reason we got top four that year. Absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. I think what I'm saying is the goal shouldn't be rolling the dice on recalling guys who are leaving the club and hoping they can put produce half a season of of a good performance so much as learning from this and just building more balanced squads you know i think he is representative sure, of a sure p- but there's ma- there's you know there's many lessons to it one of which is you don't know on players and in terms of development so this isn't ha- this isn't how you plan because you can't plan this but one of the strengths of the manager while we're you know, as we're in this phase where almost everything he does is wrong and and Coquelin is now newly completely shit, is the fact <laughs> that one of the manager's strengths is he's open. Now, it's one of his weaknesses on the other side of it, but he was open to Coquelin. He was open to developing. He was open to taking advantage of him. What he hasn't been often enough in his later career is ruthless enough, pragmatic enough, and he doesn't have a clear enough blueprint. And Coquelin benefited from that, but was also hurt by it because after Santi, he never had a player he could play with. Yeah, and, and look, Coquelin for me will always be representative of, and I agree, guy who tried very hard, who did contribute a lot, who did help us get top four at a time when it was perilous. He will always sort of represent to me a period where squad building was haphazard and not well planned out in the sense that um, he got his chance to come back because the squad was in such an imbalanced state and and he made the most of it. I mean, look, Hector Bellerin's another but, example but, of, but, but, of but, fortune but, favoring but. him. Yeah. He also suffered from it on the other side because he was never matched up with a player. Well, because he wasn't supposed to still be there, right? I mean, the squad wasn't built for Francis Coughlin to be in it. <laughs> yeah, but we had a couple of a couple of windows after that. Should, um, should we have been building around Coughlin, though? Should we have, should we have bought got, players to partner him? Yeah. I mean, building around, building around him is different, but we can identify every one of our midfielders and say, yeah, he's limited. He needs somebody to match with him. You know, how would Coquelin and, El ne- and uh, Maitland-Niles play together? Uh, it's not ideal, but a player who can, who can balance somebody out and, and counteract them. You know, Coquelin, Chaka, uh, Ramsey... El Neni have all strengths and weaknesses, but they all, in particular, have this requirement that they need another very rounded midfielder. Probably our most rounded midfielder at the moment is Jack. Um, he's the guy who needs a, the least special player beside him. He needs something else from another player, but he's he's a guy who has most of what he needs. Um, that is not he doesn't require extraordinary attributes from another central midfielder he just needs a guy who's more defensive and can cover mm-hmm. uh a little bit extra wh- wh- without the ball and who will adapt to jack and i think uh although i'm not saying you build a team around cock he has as much right to say that he was never matched up with a player you know ramsey and cock is just you know a weird animal Ramsey's okay. going to bomb forward, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Look, so, I, uh, t- I, I take your point, Paul. He, he he had Santi, and it worked that way, and it it hasn't worked since, and that may be as much a factor of 
Arsene Wenger never having anyone they could put on the pitch that could get the best out of Francis Coughlin. I think the midfield, too, didn't help him. I think playing him in more advanced role as a sword rather than a shield didn't help him. It's all consigned to history. I think we have now put in more minutes. As we we reflect on his career uh, at Arsenal and we say, oh, well, he he was really shit towards the end. You know, after Sandy, there was nothing. Well, he suffered from it. I'm not saying we should have built around him. I'm just saying he suffered from the same thing every one of the other guys did. Yeah, and, and I mean, we have now put in as many minutes to his departure as I think he's played this season. So that should just about yeah. wrap it up. Um, <laughs> gone but not forgotten. In any event, uh, let's talk about something else that has nothing to do with what happened on the pitch because not much happened on the pitch. But, Tim, the, the lineup against Chelsea surprised me in a few ways, but none more <clears throat> than a Wobie starting. Um, mm. You know, my big uh, axe to grind for a long time now, to the point where people got sick of it and I stopped talking about it because I was just tired of people telling me to shut up, but I, I guess I'm not tired of it anymore. It's just that Arsenal is a very cozy place to play your football, that you make a nice wage, that the expectations are modest, that performances don't always dictate whether you'll get to play. Um, you don't have to get berated for poor performances or berated over tactical positioning and awareness and things like that. And you know, Some of this may be me just guessing, but... Alex Awobi gets caught being out, and, and look, it's the sun, and they, they sensationalized it, and we don't know the details, and the manager has said he will be disciplined, but he was out, he was partying before the FA Cup, he then plays in the FA Cup, and I think we can agree, poorly, not well. So mm. based on performances, you have a player who's kind of been struggling, and based on discipline, you have a player who was out before a game, and he gets to start. Am I being your da here? Am I, have I lost the plot? Or is this a situation where the manager has to, has to sit him down and, and show that there are consequences for your performances and your behavior? So I think there are a couple of ways of looking at this. Um, I think Wenger was asked about this after the game, and he said, uh, you know, my, my job here is to punish the individual but not the team. And I thought that he could add something to the team. That's being too so clever by half them. for me, by the way. And... Uh, and you know, he played Iwobi at Stamford Bridge um, earlier in the season and he played in the, in the Community Shield as well um, back in August. And Iwobi actually in this game, or sorry, in this fixture, I think has a really useful function. So I think there was a little bit of, um, well, actually, I really want to play him because I have a really specific role in mind for him, most of which is... You know, Chelsea put a lot of pressure on you in the ball in your own half of the pitch. They, you know, they play Drinkwater and Kante. That's a, that's a central midfield that is designed to, like, get in your shorts when you've got the ball, basically. Um, and we don't have many players that can deal with that particularly well. So I think Iwobi had a very specific purpose to help us break through that pressure, which I think he did very well. We know at the moment, because we talked about it endlessly uh, on this podcast, that he doesn't really have the end product at the moment. And that is and could be a problem going forward, depending on how that develops. But for this specific game, um, he had a really specific purpose. I thought he played it quite well. So there's a little bit of that going on that he that I think Arsene was a bit like, do you know what, I need you tonight. Um, was, was this any other game, I'd, I'd probably... I probably would drop you, uh, and indeed I might drop you for the next couple, did, but I really need not, you tonight. Did he not need Alexis at Anfield last year when he sat him down for the first half? Was that not punishing the team in addition to the individual? Yeah, and, and maybe he learned from that. Um, not that Iwobi is as important as Alexis, of course, but, but also there's uh, an element here 
to which he did have an awful lot of choice. Um, he obviously didn't want to start Alexis, um, and I think that's probably because there is a situation going on there. Um, Nelson, he didn't want. He yeah, I, that's a that's a big ask away at Chelsea, um, particularly in a game where you're kind of not so much playing for a draw, but you're playing knowing that nil nil is a really good result and a result you take. Um, I think that's a lot to put on Reese Nelson. What's the message to um, the player, Tim? So forget the team and what it says about well, you can go out and you can be bad and you can get your starting low. But I mean, like, like you know, Clive has said a lot on this podcast that like Awobi thinks he's the shit that he's been held up at the academy as the guy everyone's striving to be. That he he has definitely felt a little bit like he's arrived and he needs to get refocused again. We don't we don't know that for sure, but is yeah. this is this how you straighten out the player? Do you think doing but, it behind closed doors is fine? I mean, they're doing it behind closed doors. But um, so my, my mate said exactly the same to me when he when he saw Iwobi in the starting lineup. He said, "I'm surprised by that," and uh, he's, he and he kind of you know said that it was like, "Oh, I don't know what message this sends." And uh, but then he said, "Well, but you know what? Maybe you look at it the other way. And if you're Arsene Mengi, you say, look, you let yourself down, not just with what you did at the weekend, but with the performance you had against Forest. You you know that wasn't good enough. Neither of those were good enough." go out and prove me wrong, go out and give me a performance, show me, show me that that was a one-off, show me that it was an error and that you've learned from it and uh, really go out there and, and really give it some and show me and give me a really good performance. And I think he did. I think, I think he played really, really well. I think he played the specific role that I think he was asked to play and I think he did it very, very well. So I, I think in that respect, he's been vindicated. It remains to be seen in the fullness of time whether... Iwobi is now thinking, oh, okay, I've got away with that. Maybe in a couple of months, you know, when my mates want to have another house party, I'll, I'll go along. But I mean, he um, sold Chesney for smoking in the showers. <laughs> like, where's the internal yeah, consistency here? But also, that, you know, that wasn't Chesney's only offense. I get it. Um, I get it. In, in that regard, that was a kind of probably more than three strikes, um, much as I hate to say it. But yeah, I, I, I feel like. Um, it was a little bit, he was restricted in his options. Um, every time we've played Alexis and Ozil at Stamford Bridge, we've been beaten. He took both of Alexis and Ozil out in September and we were very solid and got a nil-nil draw. I felt we had, as much as Chelsea dominated possession and dominated the game, I felt defensively we always had them at arm's length and I think Iwobi was important in, in terms of relieving the pressure for us. And, uh, and so I think, certainly in the short term, I think it's vindicated because I think that was Iwobi's best performance for a while. Um, like I say, largely because he's quite suited to the job he was asked to do um, in this scenario. And it might be that it's just this game where he's, he's good and useful and the others he's got to really sort something out. But um, yeah, I, I was a little bit surprised. Um, I did kind of expect to see Alexis, but... I think it made sense, and I think it was it was justified. Okay. Yeah, I got I got I, to go, add. Go he, yeah, he was really on it. I mean, he really was on his game. He was he was a dribbling maniac. It was almost like he'd recently done a line of cocaine. Careful. <laughs> uh, he that, by the way, by the way, real quick, that like is satire. Who- that is satire. So, if any attorneys are listening, that was not an accusation. <laughs> That's satire. Okay. Also, I don't live in the UK. Well, <laughs> fair. I mean, we have libel laws here too. Um, I don't. Oh, fair enough. Um, so, all right. Look, but Paul, I mean, let's dig into the question of the performance, and and we can start with Owobi's performance. I actually have to disagree with you guys slightly. I, I didn't think it was a great performance, but I'll explain why slightly differently. But it seems pretty clear to me the manager 
played for the nil-nil to the extent that we are able. The fullbacks did not get advanced. And what this was to me, you know, is is a really difficult game to analyze because on the one hand, how can you argue with a nil-nil at Stanford Bridge in a two-legged tie? Um, that's a good result. I mean, traditionally speaking, that is a good result. My criticism of it would be that we achieved it playing much in the way you would expect a small club to go to Stanford Bridge in a cup and, and try to get a nil-nil in that it wasn't that we sat deep and countered at pace or sat deep, but when we got the ball, we had we flashed some quality. I just thought this was a very, very, very low-quality game and that we kind of rode our luck a little and sat deep and got away with it. Am I being a little bit too critical? Yes. All right, so well, tell I think, me how. I, I think you're forgetting where we are in the season. I mean, we just got our asses handed to us by NFFC. Yeah, no, we're in a, we're in a low moment. We're in a low goal. moment. I get that. Yeah. Yes. Alexis is out the door. Ozil's injured. Uh, you know, Lacazette's sick. Uh, Mustafi and our back three are trying to work out which way is north and south. You know, so many aspects of this. This was a game on the edge coming into it. So um, I think most people responded so positively to this performance because it was a performance of grit. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sick of our recent games where they say, well, that was a game for the neutrals, which basically means we were horrible, but it was exciting. <laughs> I was delighted that this was not a game for the neutrals. This was a game for uh, Arsenal supporters who wanted to see if we could dig in uh, and kind of stop the rot, stop the bleeding. By the way, the cops are already on their way to your house for that cocaine comment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Apparently, we do have libel laws. There you go. Bummer. Um, So you can see where I'm going with this. This was the performance we needed, maybe not the performance Elliot wanted. But no, I liked it. I thought everybody basically played well, Uh, like in other games where we're shit and we start to criticize people. And I might say, well, how can you criticize anybody in that game? I think everybody basically played well. Uh, a few players had their wobbly moments, their dodgy aspects. You know, you could say something about Ospina, and we will. Uh, Mustafi, uh, uh, it will be going forward. Lacazette been off the boil, but still doing what he could. You know, I think everybody did what they could, what they could. kept it compact. It was solid. Um, Jack, I thought, was really good. Jack and Iwobi were the standout players in the first half for me. I thought Jack uh, was our best player. I don't think it was close, Sam. Yeah. yeah, and, well, I do. And uh, and I, I we'll, we'll get into the Iwobi bit apparently in a little bit, but I think it was essential that he was there to relieve the pressure. Well, okay. Every fu- Hang on, hang mm-hmm. on. Yep. Every fucking time he got the ball, didn't matter if he was surrounded by one, two, three Chelsea players, he would find a way out and forward and threaten their final third and threaten their penalty box and then, you know, lose pass here or there. But he actually passed to Bellerin more than you might think. Yeah, so, well, I mean, just so you know, uh, Bellerin did not get up the pitch at all. I mean, at all. Um, yeah. There were, uh, we, we basically played no crosses in this game. We played nine total, one from the end line. Um, we didn't push the fullbacks up. And I think. That is certainly by design. That doesn't happen by accident. Maitland-Niles played the majority of those crosses. Um, my, my issue with the Wobie is really just this. And, and Tim, I kind of told you this on Twitter. Um, you know, to me, 
all of the things you're saying about what he did, all the things you're both saying about what he did are true, except he was playing as one of three forwards. And so in this system, I think the question we have with Awobi is, if his job is to come back, help break the press, help get out of those tight spaces, help us get away from drink water and Conte getting in, in your shorts and... You know, I, I would be perfectly fine if drink water and Conte do not get in my shorts. Um, <laughs> but, like, if that's the role, then what you're saying is, you know, you know he doesn't have end product. You know he's going to be loose with the ball in the final third. I mean, then you've got Welbeck as the other forward who can't create anything, and you can see that there's nowhere the goals are going to come from. So, I mean, is that, is that really it, the issue, Tim? I mean, is it fair to say you can credit what he did do in the game while acknowledging that that contribution from one of – your three forwards is going to naturally blunt whatever offensive output you're hoping to get. I mean, maybe, but I, I think, um, you know, whether he's one of the three forwards or not, I, I think is kind of immaterial to be honest, because that's not what we were setting up to do. I think we were setting up very much with a nil nil would be nice if we can get one on the counter. And by the way, it will be, and Welbeck are two decent players to have on a counter attack. Um, Maybe not with the finishing, um, but we, we didn't get that many chances to counter. Although Wenger kind of hinted at it, um, he, he kind of said, oh, we actually in the last 20 minutes, we had some good kind of situations that we didn't take advantage of. Um, when well, there Sanchez was, there was the, came on. When Sanchez came on. Well, but there on, was yeah, the Awobi. Exactly. I mean, the, the quintessential Awobi moment, you know, is when he has that brilliant yeah, drive yeah. through the centre of midfield and all the way into the final third and then just And then that awful pushes shot. It, yeah, yeah. But I mean, whether yeah, whether he was one of the three forwards or not, I, I think it's kind of immaterial because we were kind of setting up for a nil-nil. And, and so they had the, three in midfield, to your point, Tim. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. And Ozil would have been dropping back and helping out. I mean, we've seen this yeah. movie before, but you can't. We can't be out of possession with two players against three midfielders. Yeah, but basically, I think what we're both saying here is we weren't really playing with three forwards. Yeah. Um, we, we, we weren't kind of yes, matched right. up. We matched up Chelsea's three-five-two. Really, is what we did. Um, you know, Wenger used the phrase "blocking the game." He said both teams know each other very well, so they both know how to block the game if they want to. And um, there was only one team on the night trying to block the game, and it was us, which I'm personally delighted about um, in this in this scenario. So um, I've worked yeah. out what the problem is, Tim. You know, you know the way it wasn't a game for the neutrals. That's why Elliot didn't enjoy it. Are you saying I'm neutral? <laughs> I'm not. Look, I will admit, the 2-2 at, at, at the Emirates is a game I enjoyed watching, even though it drives me fucking nuts. And yes, I'm sick of watching us be exciting, but I like watching quality, and there just wasn't a lot of quality in this game. And I, I think, look, when I looked at that lineup, to me it was manifestly obvious, we're not scoring. We're not scoring tonight. So then you say, all right, we're here to get a nil-nil, which is fine. You know, and look, it's... It's not so much the nil-nil. I, I, it's hard for me. On the one hand, I really want to be uh, appreciative of the defensive effort and setting up for a nil-nil and, and being able to get through the game and, and come away with it. And I just Yeah, the it was other great, end, wasn't it? Yeah, but at, at the other end of the spectrum, there's a part of me that says if you're Arsenal Football Club and you go to Stamford Bridge in a cup tie, you should have more quality than that. Your performance should just have more quality. Even a defensively oriented effort should have more quality. And, and maybe that is being a little bit precious, and maybe that's being a little... You've got to know where you, you're at in the arc. That's not where we season. are right now. Yeah, yeah. I to, that's totally, you guys are. are totally on the ball here. I, and I am maybe just being a little too down on it 
because it it wasn't fun football to watch, and I'm just throwing my toys out of the pram. Totally possible. I liked it. Did you yeah. enjoy it, Tim? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. It was it was. Um, well, don't get me wrong. What I wanted was to win ten nil and to for all their players to be sent. That's what I said would happen in, at the end of last pod. So in, I look like an idiot now. Yeah. In 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 the real world, um, that was what I wanted to happen, um, and I, I wasn't sure we had it in us. I wasn't sure we'd try to do it, and because uh, effectively what we've done now. So basically, even with you know the first team and whatnot, we're awful away from home this season. We're in really bad away form, but we're quite good at home. And what we've effectively done with this game is, you know, we've had some decent results against Chelsea um, under Conte. We've been able to we've been able to keep them arm's length most of the times that we've played them. And what we've effectively done is now turn the second leg into a one-off game. Um, and we're playing at home. And I'll, I'll tell you why, basically, that the simplest way you can tell whether this is a good result and whether this was a good approach for Arsenal is how Chelsea feel. Chelsea very demonstratively feel that this was a bad result. And that is why they threw the kitchen sink at us in the second half, mm-hmm. because they were desperate to go to the Emirates with a lead, because they know... That, and I'm not saying we're going to win or anything like that. It's still completely in the balance. But they know that coming to the Emirates without a lead, you know, they know the Emirates is a really difficult place to come. How, whatever our problems, uh, not many teams come to us and get and get much. And they really didn't want that. They really wanted the advantage. They really wanted us to have, you know, to have to just go for it. Um, really to like expose a lot of our bad weaknesses in the home leg. Now we can just treat it like a one-off league game, and that doesn't mean we're going to win or anything. But um, that's a much better I, I, that that's a much better position for us to be in. And Chelsea know it, and Chelsea knew it at the final whistle as well. They regard this as a bad result, which is why at this stage for us it's a good result. Yeah, that makes me happy. But so let me ask you just really, really quickly: if this performance result aside, if if this performance mm. had been in the league, would you feel mm. more annoyed by it? If we had, if we had set up this way and played this way in, in a league fixture? At, at this stage, no. Because um, uh, obviously the difference is that in the league we're trailing and we need to win games because we're chasing. Well, that, that's what um, I mean. If this game had happened right yeah. now at this point with us in the table where yeah, we were. Yeah, because I suppose it happened in September, right? And I was perfectly happy with it in September. Yes, yeah, different, different at situation. this point, I'd, I'd be just about all right with it. Maybe give it another month or two, and you'd think, nah, we've, we've got to go and win it. Again, not the um, result. If we approached so, a league game in the yeah. current situation this way, would would that have annoyed you? No, not okay. at the moment. Um, fair enough. Look, I, again, I sometimes have opinions that are uh, unsustainable and supportable by uh, logic and reason. So it's, it's entirely possible that's what's happening here. Um, let's, let's talk about things we will agree on, which is that Jack Wilshire... Uh, prior to his injury, which it looks like is going to be minor, and we'll keep our fingers crossed about that because with Jack, you can't just bank on that, but it looks minor. Um, he was playing really well, and uh, I guess, Paul, like, I am prepared to admit that Jack Wilshire might, there might be a good footballer still in Jack Wilshire, and I've been so reluctant to accept it because um, I had written him off. He, he was my favorite player at Arsenal when he broke through. And then the injuries destroyed him. And then when he went off to Bournemouth, I watched his performances at Bournemouth. I saw nothing to suggest that there was a, a really top football player in him anymore. He comes back. 
He didn't look amazing in Europa League, but he has grown into it. And now he's giving us some of the qualities we've really lacked in midfield, the ability to pick up the ball, carry it forward, move the ball quickly. Um, I think his defending has been better than I expected. Look, he still can't really run, and he can't track back that much. That's not his fault. If we put him next to someone who can, that would certainly be a help. But injury aside, did this performance just continue to grow your belief that Jack Wilshire may very well have a future and, and potentially an important future at Arsenal? Yeah, it's, it's all about fitness. I don't think he's hit his ceiling yet. I mean, I'm not saying he's making a massive leap every game, but... He's he's building and building. I'll quibble with you on his his speed. Um, he's he's never been great at tracking back and covering. I mean, he tries, but as Tim points out, he's an offensive-minded player, and it's it's as much that as anything. Um, probably his his greatest contribution, unfortunately, is he's actually a pretty good sliding tackler, but that. Uh, carries with it commensurate risks to the lad's glass ankles. But going forward, I mean, just get out the 17-18 Jack Wilshire highlights clip and just see how many players he minces and then with the ball at his feet pulls away from. Well, there was a funny moment in the game where, where he turns and bursts away from Fabregas. You could see this look on his face like, I'm flying yeah. now. And I think it was Rudiger who just then, like effortlessly runs him down and takes the ball yeah. off him. But like, you know, watching him spin and run away from Fabregas, I don't know that you can measure anything that way. No, but I mean, he's done it to so many players and so many quick players. I mean, he left Hazard behind at one stage. So uh, now that could have something to do with Hazard's motivation. But, he, you know, player after player, he doesn't have the burst he has when he was 17, 18. I mean, but then nobody does. You know, Maitland-Niles will still be fast in a few years, but he won't quite have that pop. But, you know, Jack going forward with the ball at his feet, if he passes a guy, they stay past. Um, so well, part of that also is he keeps the ball close to him. You know, I mean, we have so many players that when they're running with the ball, they they don't keep it close to their body. He keeps it so close to his feet, and I think it just makes it hard once he gets past someone for them to get in a position to make a recovering challenge. Yeah, but you know, I, I mean, I do look for the speed thing, and they don't come back at him. Um, they don't they don't narrow the gap. Now he, he probably can't do it for thirty forty yards, but uh, you know, his mo is generally to kind of run 10 yards with the ball and then lay it off. What we're really waiting for is for that decision-making to get better and better and that final ball to get better and better. And he's starting to kind of really calibrate it. So, I mean, one can only pray that when he says he'll be back in two or three days, it's not because he he's hoping to get the contract done before they find out it's actually two to three months. Yeah, he he had one bad moment, right? He was he was given the ball, maybe not in the best position, but it was in our, in our defensive third and he yeah. tried to turn and push the ball to start running, and he gave it right back to them and put us yeah, under pressure. I think just before he got injured, actually, he gave the ball away a couple of times, and I was starting to think, well, maybe he's getting tired this so he's time. He's playing a lot of football. I mean, you he know, is, yeah. I mean, this 90s. injury is supposed to be minor, which is great, but I mean, like, he went from being a guy that we were worried if he got a 20-minute run in a game to a guy who's starting every match. So that in and of itself tells you something. I mean, I mean Tim... Um, I want to move off Jack onto Maitland-Niles real quick, but but as a final word on Wilshire, I mean, are you ready to start to buy into the idea that there is an Arsenal future that has Jack prominently in it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, like like, like I said a couple of pods ago, you know, I I do have some concerns over his off-the-ball game sometimes, but I think that's just exacerbated by the fact that 
everybody at Arsenal is 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 quite bad at that and maybe maybe even with a different coaching setup that might make all the difference uh, less the personnel around him um, but yeah absolutely I, I think the fact that he's been able to complete 90 minutes so often um, is is very very good for him I think he's been playing re- you know he's been playing really well I'd, I'd be fascinated to see now whether him and Ramsey can co- coexist in the same team because I never thought they could but one of the things I do think Jack has been able to doctor his game a little bit. I think he's almost accepted his physical limitations and he's not trying to burst forward all the time. He's not trying to be Roy of the Rovers and he's not. he, he doesn't seem to be going for the Steven Gerrard fantasy um, anymore. He's, he seems to be a little bit more controlled and picking his moments, which I think is a really pleasing development and suggests um, a level of maturity. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm I'm perfectly prepared to. I, I I feel quite relaxed on it, to be honest. Um, I, I, is he you know, still probably, is he a starter for you when Ramsey comes back? They can't play together in a two. Not, I think we'd agree with that. No, so would you go yeah. right back to Shaka Ramsey? I I think I yeah yeah I think I probably would on balance. But um, like I said, I, I I wonder, and you know, this isn't just a case of shoehorning because I don't think the Arsenal team really works. So um, I think it's like maybe open to a bit of experimentation, but I'd be interested to see what Ramsey and Wilshere uh, with say Xhaka or Maitland-Niles kind of anchoring. I'd, I'd be interested to see what that was like actually. But, um, but, but basically what we've probably got, and it's probably not an ideal situation overall anyway, but we've got two fairly brittle players in Ramsey and Wilshire and, you know, um, maybe two squad players, maybe they kind of count as one player, you know, and maybe that's not that healthy actually for the squad. I don't know. Maybe it is. And maybe it just means we can rotate them a bit more and, and, be, and use them a bit more effectively. If they um, can coordinate their injuries... Yeah, which which weirdly they seem to. It's so weird that they they really really seem to do that. But yeah, I you know I'm I'm quite open minded about it. Um, really, I'm not, I'm not like absolutely. Oh, he must get a con. You know, I I think if we give him a contract, I, I think it should at least initially be a fairly cautious. You know, not quite pay as you play, but you know, so, something that acknowledges that he's you know he's not quite an absolute solid gold guarantee fitness wise. Um, but you know, if, if we're going to, we've lost Coquelin, um, it looks like we would be open to losing El Nenny as well. We don't know what Ramsey's, uh, contract situation, uh, is going to be after the summer. Um, you know, whether Jack Wilshere look like Jack Wilshere is, is probably never going to be the player he could have been but that doesn't mean that he still can't be a good and useful player. Um, and if there's a plan for him, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. But at the same time, I'm not sure I quite have the urgency everyone else does because, you know, because understandably there's a lot of sen- sentimentality around this and I, and I get that and I feel that a bit as well. But um, in the kind of cold light of day, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be absolutely outraged if the club kind of took the decision because, you know, he's been playing well and he's exceeded certainly what I thought he would do. But at the same time, like there is a danger perhaps of overstating it. And, I, and I'm not you know, I don't want to like I don't want to pour cold water on everyone, you know, because I, I don't I, I would never tell 
people not to be really supportive and appreciative of a player i'm i'm perfectly fine with that um that's great well we should be like that with all of our players quite frankly but um yeah i i think i think he's been He's been really like seven, seven and a half out of ten, um, occasionally eight out of ten, maybe sometimes six. You know, he, he's been good. And that's that's much more than I thought he was capable of, given his uh, given the kind of physical impositions that are not his fault that have been kind of put upon him throughout his career to this stage. And so he's exceeded my expectations. And he there's 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 kind of every reason to believe he can continue to get better um, even if I don't think he can quite hit the heights that mm-hmm. uh, we might have thought of at the age of 19. But yeah, he's he's playing really well. I, I thought he had a really good game last night. Um, you know, when you look at the fact that we went, you know, we, we have concerns over his off-the-ball game and yet we went to Chelsea and we kind of played for a nil-nil and he was one of our best players and he got injured blocking a shot. So, you know, maybe we're being a bit harsh on him in that respect because he's doing his job at the moment, I think. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and and I think, look, fan service isn't a bad thing, right? The club exists, no, exactly. ideally, to make the supporters happy. So absent us exactly. winning title after title, if keeping Jack around makes a lot of fans happy and we're not raising yeah. him to a ridiculous level of, of wage and he looks like he's still a player, we're not just keeping him around because he's, you know, he, he's a guy who kisses the badge. Like, there's nothing wrong with leaning towards keeping Jack versus selling him or letting him go indeed because he keeps supporters happy like that that's part of it you there's know? there's not much that arsenal fans unite behind at the moment but um jack wilshire is one of them and that's you know that's that's perfectly fine good yeah yeah i mean look i i am still li- little bit on the fence a little but mm. like i yeah, like same, same. i always liked him and if he can come good great and like again should we put him on 180,000 a week and tie up all our midfield wages on him no that that would be problematic that would block the growth mm. of the club but if the rumors are true and we're not even really offering him a raise or a nominal you know sort of inflationary raise to keep him at the club and that keeps fans happy like nothing wrong with that it's kind of my whole alexis mm. point too right like I would like to enjoy this season. Like, this season counts, you know? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Like, people are so caught up in squad building now and so caught up in, well, where's the money going to come from for next summer's transfers? And it's like, you know, we still have six months of football to root for, right? So, yeah, yeah. Know, it's bizarre. Anyway, um, I want to get to the transfer section. <laughs> Touche. Uh, but before we do that, we, there's just a couple things we have to finish off in this game. Um, and Scott's going to try his hand at scouting uh, with a section, a, a little eight, nine-minute section that he's got coming up. So, Paul, um, Maitland-Niles, uh, uh, against Southampton last year, he really helped run the show in midfield against a second-team Southampton side that we obliterated in the FA Cup. And you predicted that Maitland-Niles would be the, the savior, the future and savior of our central <laughs> midfield. We laughed at you, and fuck me, you were right. Um <laughs> He was great in this game. I, the first thing I want to get to, just really, really quickly, VAR ruled it out. Do you think... It's a fucking you, penalty. Okay. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. But the one thing I will say is you look, have to be look. internally consistent. Because some people are like, well, the hazard, if the hazard one's a penalty, this one is too. Well, none of us thought the hazard one was a penalty. So two wrongs mm-hmm. don't make a right. So if you don't think the hazard one was a penalty, and that was a wrong call is this a right call and we just feel aggrieved because of that wrong call? It's a right fucking call because it's never going to be given. And even with the VAR calling, it's never going to be given because they never give the call they tell you they're going to give you. The the player should be honest and do everything he can to stay on his feet and then we'll take care of whether the guy swung at him and missed or lightly clipped him. If he goes straight down, is it a penalty? Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, uh, he doesn't even have to like drag his his leg. You know, uh, Alan Smith was commentating on the game. He says, you know, if he drags his leg, that's a penalty. And I'm like, how about if he just doesn't avoid yeah. the swing and miss? I, I look at it this way, Paul. I mean, I, I'm kind of of this opinion. It could have been a penalty, and had it been given, I would say there's cause for it. Similar to the Hazard one, I I think there was contact with Hazard, and I don't think it was a penalty. I, I don't necessarily think the Maitland-Niles one is a penalty either. Now, what I would say is, it's perfectly fair to point out, well, the Hazard one's a penalty, this should be too. And what I would say is, the Hazard one was a wrong call. So... Should we get yeah. a wrong call to go for us? I mean, yes, I would love that. I don't, of course I would I love that, but they're, they're both the same wrong. Decision. I think I think I always thought the Hazard one was marginal. Okay. Um, and this and, one you think uh, was Stonewall? This one's Stonewall. It's the fucking foul. He doesn't get... It doesn't, Tim, do you, do, you, do you... Just real quick, Tim, do you agree? I haven't seen a replay, but my thought at the time was exactly the same as Hazard. I know not a penalty, but could be. Okay. Um, so, so just... Then Paul, because I don't, I don't want to dive into that too much. I, I'm I just going to say, Elliot, mm-hmm. Tim's full of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> no kidding. Um, we, I, I mean, read the reviews of the podcast. It's just like 58 people saying the same thing. Um, so, yeah. so uh, I, I, you see, I, I got to say that to you, Elliot, because I don't really argue with Tim. I argue with you. So, yeah, so you're trying to start He's an argument with Tim? Shit. I can, I can get, yeah, I can get behind you. this shift in the dynamic. Um, yeah. Hey, so, but all kidding around. I mean, Maitland Niles. I thought this was a, a good performance. I thought it was a, a controlled performance. He did get forward more than Bellerin did, but not so much. I mean, he got caught out on a couple of occasions. I still think it's a midfielder playing fullback on his wrong foot. That's going to happen. But by and large, how impressed are you with Maitland-Niles? And the manager hinted at him maybe moving to midfield now. Is it time for Yay. this to happen? Yay. Uh, well, it's... It- you know, if Past I time. if it were, <laughs> yeah, it is because the manager needs something here, something he has yet to see in his team, and it may be too much for Maitland Niles. It might destroy Maitland Niles to move him to the midfield, but the manager needs to roll the dice somewhere to get us from being the sixth best team only because the seventh best team is fucking shite. Um to being some kind of a contender for the top four. And unless he's got some players coming in this window, he needs to fucking shake things up. And if we're going to go backwards by losing Sanchez um, and whoever else is going out this window, and even if we bring in somebody interesting and exciting, I mean, we've seen Wenger taking a while to bed them in, blah, blah, blah. So if we're basically looking at this squad to do something, we got to come up with something significant and different. And midfield holds everything together. Our defense is never going to be good without a a a, a really uh, churn in midfield. Our attack is never going to be any good, uh, especially if we lose Alexis without a churn in midfield. Um, what's the fucking risk apart from we might ruin this guy and ruin his career and well, we might yeah, come big, big seventh? I mean, but but we're not going to, right? I mean, he he's got the tools. Sadly. I mean, at some point you look and you say, and and. You know, I mean, we're not talking about throwing him in a central midfield with a, a bunch of fools and jokers, right? I mean, th- this is someone who looks like he could be the answer to getting more out of Shaka, more out of Ramsey, more out of Jack, more out of whoever you want to throw in the midfield. His athleticism, his recovery runs, his ability to carry the ball. I mean, it, it is a Amen. really exciting development. And I, I think it then gives us the flexibility to go back to a three in midfield or even stay with the midfield too, but have a little more balance. Um, it just... It's something that I think is overdue at this point. And, and it is. 
the only question uh, to your point, you're, you're going to have inconsistent performances from young players. I mean, they, they are yeah. not consistently strong performers. Um, yeah, and I'm not saying we move him into midfield and he plays every game from here on in, but I think at, at the earliest opportunity we started, we start getting embedded in. And, I mean, when you see him move Hazard off the ball for the second game in a row, uh, he doesn't just do this through pace. He's got balance. He's choosing his moments. Yeah, he got minced a couple of times by Moses, but that was very early on. And he learned as the game went on. He grew into mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, playing Chelsea three times in a row might be really, really good for this guy. So, Okay, I, I want to do something here. I want, I want to introduce a new section called Quick Hits because I got a lot of little quick hits to get to before we do the transfer Ooh. bit. Um, and I want to wrap this up, you know, sooner rather than later. Um, so quick hits. You got 30 seconds or less to answer these questions, okay? Just keep that internal <laughs> clock in your mind. So, so let's just, because there's still st- still t- stuff to get here, get to here. Yeah. Um, yep. So quick hit for you, Tim. VAR, yeah. um, I know you're against it. You don't like it. It was used in this mm. game. I think the implementation can be refined. But as far as your experience mm-hmm. in this one game, was it tolerable to the point you'd be willing to give it another shot or so annoying you want to fuck off right away? Oh, I... I you know, I'm I'm totally against it, both principally and because I don't, like philosophically, and because I don't think it will work. The, this game wasn't, you know, was kind of free of the super super controversial. The the real problem they've got is um, communicating it to the fans inside the stadium, um, and you know the way NFL does it with the challenges and stuff like that. If they're going to do it, I think that's a much better way to go, because this isn't coming from the cries for bar. It's not about justice it's about perceived injustice it's coming from a negative place in my opinion Mm -hmm. and therefore all that's going to happen is people are just going to transfer their whinging from referees to the video referee so so did Um, the application of it in this game annoy you though yeah yeah because there were times where like particularly there were chelsea corners down the other end and i was looking around i was like what's the hold up and i could just see the referee pressing his ear and it was like, oh, okay, so there's obviously VAR. It should be up on the screen or something like that. Yes, of they, and, and don't get me wrong, like obviously that will take some time, and I'm sure they will address that, but I found it a bit annoying, okay. yes. Okay, next quick hit. Um, Ozil injury, and I'm going to give you each 30 seconds or less. Again, reminder. Uh, uh, Paul, Ozil, injured, not injured? Yeah, no injured. Uh, I no, think it's no an injured? ongoing saga. No injured? <laughs> He's injured. Okay. Uh, no, um, I, that's your answer. Nothing to see here. Move along, everybody. Tim, this, is, fine. this is his winter break, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. The proof in the pudding will be on Sunday. If he plays on Sunday, I'll be inclined to believe that this is Ozil's annual winter break. If he doesn't, then injury. He, he misses games every January for something. Yeah. And, and he, I mean, wasn't there the one where he like turned up in Germany and was like, out celebrating a birthday party. Yeah, we had a game it's show. like yeah. Mesut's dry January. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, quick hits, continuing. Uh, Tim, I'll stay with you for a second. Mustafi, mm. I'm still not convinced. I, <laughs> In a good defensive performance, he still scares mm. the living shit out of me. Uh, how do you feel about him? Uh, yeah, I'm still on the fence. Like I said in the last pod, he could be Vermaelen or he could be Koscielny. He looked a bit more like Koscielny um, last night, but... Um, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next game he's a bit more like the Marlin. Um, yeah. We'll see. Paul? But the back three did end up being man of the match. Uh, I think just... they gave Mustafi man of the match, but he had one header. There's one moment. And I meant to write the minute down, but you've got to try to find it. Paul, you'll watch the game again, so you'll see it. He does this terrible header, defensive header, 
and then he just kind of starts wandering towards the touchline. <laughs> and I, I don't, I sometimes I, I tweeted it looked like he was having a stroke. Um, <laughs> Paul, real quick, Ospina, um, how much do you like the the method of uh, getting as far behind his line as he can to catch balls? What the fuck? <laughs> Wasn't it off the uh, Fabregas header? Yeah, the Fabregas or... header where he, he took uh, three what? steps behind his line and then tried to carry the ball into the goal with him. Very, very yeah, strange. Uh, um, it gives him more time, Elliot. Last quick hit for you, Tim. Um, Lacazette sub. Worth booing or the guy is ill and wasn't <laughs> having a good game for fuck's sake? Uh, it's a meme now. It's one of these things people have decided on before the game. Um, I didn't know he was ill, but I, I thought he was completely ineffective. And uh, when you've got Alexis Sanchez on the bench, I'm perfectly fine with that substitution. Um, my uh, The timometer says, grow the fuck up and watch the football game. There you go, people. Grow the fuck up. <laughs> I'm talking to you, Elliot. Um so, all right, look, I enjoyed this quick hit section. Maybe we'll try this again in the future. Maybe we'll do the whole pod as a quick hit section. It'll just be a 20-minute pod, and everybody will be really happy. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend nine minutes with uh, Scott finding out uh, how easy it's going to be to replace Lexus and potentially Ozil. Then we'll come back. We'll discuss that ourselves for maybe five minutes and say goodbye. So uh, let's hear from Scott, and then we'll come right yesterday we used to rock the show. I laced the track, you locked the flow. So far from hanging on the block for dough. Notorious, they got to know that Life ain't always what it seemed to be Words can't express what you mean to me Even though you're gone, we still a team Through your family, I feel you Okay, we've got Scott on the podcast now You can find Scott on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab Hello, Scott Hello Hello, indeed Um, Your stuff is also on crabstats.blogspot.com And I recommend everybody check that out So we're not really going to focus on the game Because... Obviously, the game was boring as hell, but we are going to talk transfers uh, in our continuing effort to uh, get people to listen to the podcast. So, real quick, just on the game, Scott, uh, getting nil-nil draw away in a two-legged tie, always quantified as a good result, or at least people claim it's a good result. So, with the model that you keep that takes into account all the various factors, uh, how do you see this uh, turning out in the second half? What does your model show in terms of our odds for getting through to the final? Um, I actually, um, so I ran them this morning, and well, one thing, this is a, a screwy kind of a ter- uh, tournament where um, there's no away goals until extra time, so I had to go back and rerun things again, and so with that, things have now um, broken out to Arsenal have a 48% chance of making it to the final with Chelsea, 52%, and um, there's actually even a pretty good chance of you know getting some penalties here, so Yuck. If, as, long as, as long as Petr Cech's not in goal, we might actually have a chance of getting through there. I mean, it's so weird because I, I know I should feel better if Ospina was in goal for the penalty kicks, but I don't. Um, so 48%. So even though we got the nil-nil away, which is traditionally considered a good result, your model still has us as slight underdogs to get to the final. Yeah, so um, Arsenal and Chelsea basically have about the same um, team rating in my, in my model. Um, so this is assuming that Arsenal don't sell Alexis and he's able to play, I guess, in the next round and that whatever knee injury Ozil was suffering he comes back from um if the those two aren't there you know you'd have to probably take some away for the team strength then Chelsea would probably be a little bit more favorite Mm. but assuming a full strength team it's about 50 50 good enough well all right we know that Francis Coughlin will not be winning the final for us with a screamer from 30 yards out he has been sold to Valencia what we don't know is whether Alexis will be saving our ass with um a brilliant finish in the 120th minute to send us through to the final because we don't know if he's going to be sold or not. But if he were to be sold, 
Um, I think there are a lot of people that are under the impression that, oh, you know, we'll be better without him. We'll play a better team game. Uh, I have been more skeptical of that, and I know some people think uh, that I'm crazy, that, that he's holding us back. It's It's been an issue of, uh, I think, some debate online, and, and we've debated on the podcast, but you've done something interesting with both Ozone and Alexis, which is you've looked at a variety of their statistics, uh, aggregated them, and then compiled a list of players in world football, or I should say European football, in the uh, major leagues that you track, players whose statistics uh, add up to 75% of their output or better, right? So in other words, players who, for all those statistics, when you put them all together, have at least 75% of the output of Alexis or more. So first of all, what are the statistics that you used to uh, investigate this? So I did this for both Ozil and Alexis. So we'll talk about Alexis first. So the idea was I kind of looked at, so what are the, what are the most important things that Alexis gives to, to Arsenal? And I settled on his creativity, his shots that he's able to do, the dribbles, and then also, you know, XA and XG, which are kind of associated with key passes and shots. Um, so we looked at, and I set the the cutoffs for 2.2 key passes per 90, at least three shots per 90, 1.8 dribbles per 90, 0.2 XA, and 0.3 XG. And... The list of players that actually met this criteria for this season was pretty short. And okay, it was now before you read that players. list, before yeah. you read it, th- that those cutoffs are seventy-five percent of Alexis. So he actually gives us more than that. But you set the cutoff of seventy-five percent of what he provides. That's right? right. Okay. Okay. So who's on the list? Let's 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 uh, unveil it. All right. So we have Florian Thavin. We yeah. have Joseph Illich, Kylian Mbappe, Leon Bailey. Lionel Messi, Neymar, Paulo Dybala, and Phil Coutinho. Okay, so and I'm going to... And that's the list. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that some of our uh, non-American listeners are going to be giggling at some of your pronunciations. But pronunciations aside, I mean, Messi, Neymar, Dybala, um, I mean... Coutinho, Coutinho Mbappe. Yeah, yeah, Mbappe. Yeah, these are, <laughs> so these are the players. I mean, there were maybe one or two on there that were kind of surprising, but it's a short list, and it's a list of some of the best players in world football. So, And that's giving them the benefit of 75% of his total output, not his total output. So those are the players who match what he gives us in terms of all of those categories. Putting that to one side, as you look through your database, do any players jump out at you as possibilities, players we could realistically be targeting in the transfer market that at least from a pure statistical representation seem like um, someone you think would be suited to replace him with? Um, so I know a person that I've always dreamed about would have been Dybala. I mean, I don't know if that's even a realistic transfer target, especially um, with Arsenal's current situation. Um, I was intrigued by Leon Bailey that was on the list. Um, and then I know then the other rumor that's been floating around is Malcolm from Bordeaux. Um, that one is probably a more realistic, and I've seen um, a, a transfer fee rumored of about 45 million pounds. Statistically, how does he stack up? Yeah, statistically, he doesn't quite match up with the, um, the, the shots and then the XG. Um, he's much more of a, I saw this um, on Twitter um, from Mohammed Squared, um, where he said that he reminds him of a Andros Townsend, so not a very flattering um, comparison. Because of shot selection? It. Yeah, shot selection and just you know the overall volume of shots that he shoots, it's going to be a lot of it from outside the box and not great shots. Um, all the other stuff looks nice. He's a tricky winger, quick, fast, makes good passing. But basically, Alexis is hard to replace, so you're going to have... If you're going to find a replacement out there that's not going to cost you 100 million pounds, 
uh, you're going to have to take some sacrifices somewhere. What about uh, Thomas Lamar? I mean, he's, he's a guy that we chased in the summer. I think a lot of people were hoping we'd get him, but I'm not sure a lot of people know exactly what kind of player we'd be getting. In terms of what the statistics say about him, is he someone we should be hoping for? To me, he's definitely not an Alexis replacement. Um, he definitely doesn't do the the shooting that Alexis does. He's much more of a creative. To me, he would match a lot better as a Ozil replacement, although he wasn't on the list for the Ozil replacements, um, based, based primarily on the actually creating the offense instead of being um, a person who sets up the offense. Not an end product guy, then. Yeah. Yeah, he, it actually looked a lot... Um, or, eerily similar to what an Alex Iwobi's, um shot to, or you know radar would look like. E, um, well, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, okay, well, actually, you did the same thing for Ozil, and while we're hoping we don't lose Ozil, of course, it's possible. You might even say likely. And so in terms of players with 75% of the output of Mesut Ozil, what were the cutoffs you used for that, and who made the list? Um, so this one, um, again, I looked at key passes, XA and XG. Um, I didn't pull out the actual numbers, what the 75% was, but they no are, again, I looked at the, the 75% for the, the cutoffs. Um, I also did big chance key passes. So um, big chances are an Optus stat, um, and that's you know going to be a one-on-one with the keeper that's created. Usually it's following a, a through ball or some other kind of very good pass um, or a big situation. So um, that's something that Mesut Ozil really excels at is creating those chances for teammates. So that's something I also wanted to look at. Um, and so for the list is we have Alejandro Gomez, Dimitri Payet, Iago Falque. I mean, I'm very sorry about the pronunciations. Uh, again, <laughs> Lionel Messi again, uh, Lorenzo Insigne, Luis Alberto, Marcelo Brozovic, uh, Neymar, Phil Coutinho, Willian, and um, there's a guy here that I, I, I might have heard before, Alexis Sanchez. No way. Is on the list. No way. Yeah. So Alexis Sanchez actually not only is a great Alexis Sanchez, but he is a reasonable analog for Mesut Ozil. Yeah, they, they, they actually, yeah, that, that creative part of Alexis's game is underrated. Um, oh, and I, I, I saw, yeah, yeah, you were tooting earlier. Um, he also was on one of the list for the, the highest XA leaders. Um, and it's just, it is amazing that he actually does show up on that list for all the offense that he's able to produce for himself but he also was able to produce for teammates as well. So all we have to do to replace Alexis is replace a guy who's routinely our leading scorer and the guy who is also the most like Ozil in our team, who we may also be losing. So, you know, no no worries, Sven, Mislintat. Just, you know, be a guru or we're all dead. So, I mean, that list had some players on it that maybe we wouldn't as consider consider as big world stars as um, as we're on the Alexis list, although Alexis is on the Ozil list, ironically. There were some uh, duplicates, obviously, Lionel Messi, Neymar, Coutinho. It's, it's pretty esteemed company. Anyone on that list that jumps out at you as someone we should be going for, just again, purely based on how the statistics line up or someone else you have in mind, if we are losing an Ozil, uh, how we would replace him? Um, so, I mean, I guess looking at the age profile of the people um, as a, something that you'd maybe possibly want to build around, uh, the the Luis Alberto um, from Lazio, um, that one seemed pretty intriguing. He's a 25-year-old, um, and he's putting up really good um, creative numbers. Um, so that one actually seems like it would be a fairly good. Hmm. Um, if, I, if I was going to be the scout or, you know, the, the analyst, you know, suggesting Stats someone. Stats DNA. That, Stats DNA. Send your resume. Yeah, so that, that would be the, the name that I would um, say that, hey, let's take a look at this guy. Send our scouts over there to look at him. 
Um, and then Brozovic um, from Inter Milan, um, he had really good numbers as well, but I was a little bit wary on him um, just because he's only played just under 700 minutes this season. Um, and seven of those appearances came as a sub. Um, and you know, I, know, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but you do get a sub bonus. So a lot of times when you are subbed on, um, such as an offensive player, it's where you're facing a tired defense or you're coming in and your team is behind. So you're really focused on scoring. So it can kind of boost your numbers offensively, especially the per 90 stuff. So this one that makes me a little bit wary of a small sample size plus sub bonus going on. But well, those yeah, are two I mean, guys if you make that really kind of... 10 substitute appearances where you play one minute each and you score one goal, your per 90 is still going to be fucking amazing <laughs> yep so yeah it makes yeah. sense um well I, all right look i i think that's all good the only thing i wanted to get to before we're done in terms of goal scoring output i i really do think we need more players who can score goals we've lost francis Cochran. can you give me the list of players in world football who equal or surpass Cochran's goal scoring just real quick you want to run them down um that's almost an, an infinite list saying, every, you know, every player everywhere um and yeah. i'm sorry i know people are going to say another unfair dig at cocklin there's your agenda again i'm sorry i wish him the best of valencia in any event scott um you've given us something to chew on especially the notion that replacing alexis uh let alone alexis and ozo is definitely an uphill battle so uh hopefully we don't have to do it but if we do um it's going to be a pretty short list. So uh, Scott's on Twitter, O underscore that underscore crab. You can find his great work on crabstats.blogspot.com. He tweets out a lot of really cool radars and charts and scatter graphics and, and data that can be helpful to add to what your eyes are telling you you're seeing and let you know that, hey, my eyes are in my head right and I'm seeing everything correctly. Or in my case, quite frequently, what the hell were you watching, you idiot? Uh, Scott, thank you so much. Thank you. Talk to you next time. I know you're Okay, we're back, and uh, that music is, of course, in honor of uh, Francis Cochran departing for Valencia. We wish you well, Francis. Um, okay, so, Tim, let's just really quickly get into the Alexis thing. The rumor mm. now is that United have come in for him, that they're offering more money, plus Mkhitaryan. Um, mm. The noises that he's going to go are growing louder. The bidding war can only stand to drive the price up. Are we going to sell him for 12 million pounds on deadline day? <laughs> I, I think this might drag out. Yeah, I, I think it certainly looks like Arsenal are open to doing some business. And Man City, uh, you know, understandably, because they hold the power, trying to lowball us a little bit. Paul and I were speaking a little bit before we came um, on air, as it were, as to whether I, I've got a feeling that maybe Arsenal are saying something like, because, you know, Arsenal and Man City both appear to want Johnny Evans as well. And I wouldn't be surprised if Arsenal were kind of saying, We'll let you have him for 20 if you stay out of the way and let us have Johnny Evans. And Man to which Man City are probably saying, no, we're still going to have both of them and there's not much you can do about it. I think but, this is what you call asymmetry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, th- I, I think there's a lot of smoke around this one. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he did go. But, you know, I at least, at the very least, it sounds like Arsenal are very serious about getting um, a replacement. Personally, I wouldn't take the Mkhitaryan swap deal. I would think about that a bit more if it was Ozil for Mkhitaryan. But um, replacing, you know, could Mkhitaryan and Ozil play together, even if that's only going to be a problem for a couple of months? 
And, you know, the big problem, the big problem for me is replacing Alexis's goals um, when he goes. We need someone who scores goals. We don't, with Alexis, we don't have enough players that score goals. So without him, you know, that doubly needs addressing. So, I mean, personally, I, I would just still keep him unless we can get like a really good, unless we think we can make the best of a bad situation in here, here and we think we can get a good goal scoring forward in January, then fine. Um, but I, I kind of doubt that's going to happen. And personally, I'd, I'd just look to keep him to the end of the season. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that we underrate with Alexis is he's averaging something like 45 games a season for us. Um, yeah. One of the best abilities is availability, uh, and he has yeah. been available. Um, and we have absolutely no incentive to rest him. We know he's going to Man City. Let's play him into the fucking ground and amen. win the Europa League. Try and win the Carabao Cup. Try and come fourth in the league. Let's try and do all of those things. Let's play him in every single game. And if he goes to Man City broken, that's fine with me, yeah, quite so, frankly. So, all right, so let, let's be clear about this, Paul. Right? So, so whether we sell him or keep him, once he leaves, his wages come off the books. So that's where some big savings is going to happen. are going to happen. Whether we get $20 million for him or not, I mean, in terms of just the pure fee... You don't buy a lot with $20 million. So the question I have for you is, if the fee is $20 million, is the potential to win the Europa League and the potential to still finish top four and maybe win the Carabao Cup, uh, you know, and I realize top four may be starting to feel like a distant possibility. But again, all those things still on the table. I don't think any of those things are on the table with Alexis going. And I realize we can't prove that, but I don't think they are. Um, is that worth £20 million of transfer fee to you? Uh, no, it's not. We but should plus, absolutely. By the way, having to watch this Arsenal team without Alexis. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's to me, there's no business reason to sell Alexis for twenty million when you just turned down fifty something million. Uh, we we made our bed. We're lying in it. The only reason to sell Alexis is because the dressing room is toxic, um, and. The manager is saying, well, I'm not going to win with him. I might as well take 20 million. But that's still a massive fuck up because he's the guy who made the decision this summer uh, in effect. So, I mean, it's kind of a, the fact that we're discussing selling him is a fuck up. Just massive fuck up. It's it's a resigning issue, is it not? <laughs> I, I would say you so. Make a, you know, for CEO and or manager, oh, sorry, manager and or CEO, that's a massive decision. And you're admitting in the middle of the season that you've got it completely wrong and you're writing the season off with even yep. less money than you could have got by just admitting it in the summer. I mean, that's that in, yeah. in a normal football club or even organization, that's um, that's your P45. It's look, yeah, it, it's this simple. It's you either sell them in the summer as part of a plan to turn over the squad and replace, you know, and, and re recoup the fee. And that's a decision I could have gotten behind. I wouldn't have loved it, but I could have gotten behind it. Or you decide to keep him. And at the point you decide to keep him, I feel like you have to say, everybody has to sit together in a room and say, we are choosing to keep this player until May, period. We are choosing to have this player carry us as far as he can carry us, period. We will play him constantly. We will have no long-termism here. And whatever we achieve this season, we will achieve because this player has helped us get there. Do we all agree? We all agree. And then that's the decision you've taken, and you stick with it. This, to me, reflects, again, and not to be a broken record, a lack of any commitment to any real strategy. I mean, Tim, am I, 
am I just going to my favorite narrative house and closing the door and putting on the TV and putting my feet up there? Um, I mean, on this occasion, they kind of, well, if you, if you take away the last kind of 24, 48 hours of the window, it kind of looked like Arsenal did have a strategy and they put their foot down and made the, the decision. Where they really fucked up was then to go back on that um, in the last 24, 48 hours. And when you go back on it, you've got to make bloody sure it's done. Um, otherwise, you know, you've seen what's happened with the atmosphere around the supporters and people, I think, are, uh, and, you know, Alexis has been off form. He's been productive, but off form. But you can see, like, the mood among the supporters is that, you know, everything he does is shit, um, which, which I think is unfair. But there you go. That's life. And, and it's it's just created... Whether this affects the team or not, it's certainly created a mood in in the fan base. And you, like you say, you've either got to shit or get off the pot, really. And Arsenal have done neither. And this is just um, th- these are terrible, terrible decisions. Um, that Un- unfortunately, on transfer deadline day, we shat and stayed on the pot. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then there's just shit everywhere. And um, and and these are you know. These are the sorts of decisions people who are out of their depth make. These are the sorts of decisions. If I was massively overpromoted and became like the CEO of Barclays Bank, for example, it would be a disaster. And it would be a disaster because I'd be well out of my depth and I'd probably make decisions like this. Yeah. I mean, I, I would like to think, though, that given that we are paying millions and millions of dollars for the decision makers... Indeed. You know, I mean, this is the thing that drives me nuts with the whole judge me in August and all that stuff. Like, there are a lot of decisions you make along the way that should be open to criticism. Uh, Final thoughts, Paul? I mean, uh, and quick hit hat. You think we'll sell them? You think we'll buy anyone? Uh, We're clearly, to me, we're clearly trying to sell them. We tried to sell them on transfer deadline day. We just fucked it up. Um, So we kind of took our lumps and then panicked and decided – uh, we wouldn't take six, 50 or 60 million or whatever it was for him because we didn't have a replacement player. But Lamar was never going to replace his production anyway. So it's, I'm not saying he, he couldn't do some of the things. and He can't do those pre- things. <laughs> or provide some of the assists and a few of the goals. But if it was Lamar for Alexis, you know, that that – that's not a million miles from where we're at at the moment by losing Alexis too. We're still basically going to lose the same number of goals and assists. So uh, it's just, it's, I it's hate to say it, but Scott, Scott was talking about it in his section. If you throw Lamar on a radar, he lines up more with a Wobie than anyone else. Um, he, he just yeah. does, doesn't have end product. Uh, Tim, so, so we, yeah, we weren't replacing him in reality. We were getting a different kind different of player, player on TDD. Yep. Yeah. And I'm not sure we're replacing him here. And it's a bollocks up because where the fuck are the goals coming from? There's a really good chance if we sell Alexis that the rest of the season, in, in its entirety, we score 10 goals. Um, Tim, <laughs> uh, ultimately, will he go this window and will anyone come in? Um, I think yes and yes. Uh, I, I, think there's, um, I think there seems to be a bit of a desire to get this one done. So I think he will. I don't quite think Arsenal is stupid enough to sell him and not bring anyone in. Who that person will be, I've got absolutely no idea. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised though if it rumbled on till the end of the window. And by the way, I think we're away at Swansea the day before deadline day. And I wouldn't be surprised for in another situation where we're playing an important game with all of this hanging over us. 
and with a player on the pitch or on the bench who is in the midst of a move. Um, Theo is going to survive another window then? I mean... No, I think he'll go. All right, so... Yeah, he's going. Lock it in right here. What's our first match in February? Uh, I think it's Everton at home on the 3rd. There is absolute 100% certainty Olivier Giroud is starting that match. Um, in any event... Uh, Tim <laughs> or Tom, Everton. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a good point. That is it. Damn you, Paul, you're a smart motherfucker. Uh, yes, Tim is on Twitter at uh, Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure. Paul's on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Thanks, Paz. Woohoo! And a very happy day to you, my friend. Uh, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review. Write nasty things about Clive in the comments section. He was too ill to come on the pod. Uh, he and Lacazette were out partying late last night, in truth. <laughs> uh, in any event, we will be back after Bournemouth at the weekend where we can discuss um, why uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles was played at center back and Alex Awobi was played <laughs> at striker. Uh, until then, we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10, Bournemouth 0. No.